Gospel, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. We will begin reading at verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs were opened and and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. This morning, as we seek to gaze our attention on the cross of Christ and think about his death, we want to understand how his death brought us gain. Specifically, then, from this passage, we want to see four blessings that come to us because of the death of Christ. The first thing that we see that Matthew tells us is that Christ's death allows new access to God. It allows us new access to God. At the moment of Jesus' death, we read that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, Matthew, being a Jew writing to Jews, this is certainly the Jewish temple in Jerusalem standing at that time. Uh, It was not the first temple that the Jews had used. There had been several over the years. First came the kind of proto-temple, the tabernacle, a tent. They could be packed up and moved around uh, that Moses uh, directed God's people to build uh, after receiving uh, instructions for it from the Lord himself. Uh, Then David desired to build a permanent temple for the Lord. And yet while he was given the plans for that, it was actually his son Solomon who built that temple. Then that temple, because of Israel's unfaithfulness, was destroyed by God himself as an act of judgment. Nevertheless, in showing mercy, he directed years later Zerubbabel to begin rebuilding it. And then much, much later, almost to the time in which we find these events unfolding, we see the Roman ruler Herod. Uh, allowing and, and giving sanction to a much more impressive temple that was built for the Jews. Now, in all of these, there was the same basic design, and it included a division within the temple structure itself. Each division uh, symbolically brought you closer to the presence of God and was meant to teach you something about what it meant to have intimacy with God. So, for example, every Israelite could come into the outer court area, but then only the priests could move in further to the holy place. Still then, only once a year could one high priest go into the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was, where symbolically God's presence was coming into his presence to offer sacrifice for the sins of his people. Now again, what was the what was the point of all that? Well, in part, it was to teach Israel that God is not just like anybody else. He's not just like any other God. He's not just your buddy down the street that you go over and, and see every once in a while. You can't just sidle up to God and kind of you know throw your arm up around his shoulder and say, so how's the universe going today? He, he's not just the big, the big guy in the sky any more than you could uh, go down to uh, Washington, D.C. and just kind of stroll up to the White House and open the door to the Oval Office and say, hey, Barack Obama, how's it going, man? 
uh, what do you do about these gas prices? You know, I mean, that's not going to happen. He's far too important for that. All the more so for God. He's not just important. He is holy. In fact, he is so holy that unless the right precautions, the right provision is made, sinners are wiped out in his presence. Even before the plans for the tabernacle were given, if you go back in Exodus chapter 19, God was going to come down to his people to meet with them, to give them his law. And he warned them not to approach, not even touch the mountain where he was going to come, lest they be destroyed because of his holiness. Thus the whole temple system was designed to allow a holy God to dwell in the midst of a sinful people. Access to him was restricted. It was mediated through the priesthood. You needed someone else to go before you on your behalf that you might approach God. But now Christ has died. And upon his death, we are told that the curtain separating the most holy place from the holy place was split in two, exposing the very dwelling place of God to everyone now, not just the priests. Through his death, Christ has provided a new and a better way to God. So that when we desire to come to God, we don't need to come through priests or sacrifices or temples. Christ is our high priest. Christ is our sacrifice. Christ is our temple. He is where we go to meet with God. So Hebrews 10 says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from evil conscience and with our bodies washed with pure water. It is through the death of Christ that we can now have direct access to the one true God, the holy God. No more temples, no more priests, just Christ and intimacy with him through the Almighty. But how was such a thing accomplished? I mean, after all, aren't we still sinners? Just like the people back then were, this is the second blessing, the second benefit, second gain that we see from Christ's death, and that is this, that Christ's death brought judgment on sin. Christ's death brought judgment on sin. In addition to the curtain being torn in two, Matthew tells us the earth shook and the rocks were split. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you immediately recognize this as language from the Old Testament. For example, in Jeremiah 10.10, we read this, The Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earthquakes and the nations cannot endure His indignation. It's just one example where this idea of the earthquaking, the rocks splitting, the foundations breaking open, are all associated with the outpouring of God's wrath. So why was He mad? Why was He pouring out His judgment? Was it just because Jesus, His Son, was killed? No, it's much more than that. The Bible says that... Um, again, access to God came through the sacrifices of the temple. They were offered continually. In other words, over and over and over again, these sacrifices were offered so that people could be made right with God. What that says is no one sacrifice was sufficient, right? Otherwise, they'd offered one sacrifice and they none of it. But they continually lived a life of sin, and they continually needed a sacrifice, and none of those sacrifices could fully bring forgiveness. Again, Hebrews is helpful. He says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So why were they offered? If God said, offer the sacrifice, but they couldn't really bring forgiveness, why were they offered? Well, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, that God was patient with his people through those sacrifices. He was patient knowing that each and every single sacrifice that was offered in faith was looking forward to the sacrifice of his son. 
He says we receive God's forgiveness as a gift of God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Why? Why, Paul? This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, his divine patience, he had passed over former sins. In other words, he should have let loose in all of his righteous fury and all of his judgment and given sinners their due, but he didn't. He was patient. He passed over those sins. Why? Because it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, God shows that he is still a just and holy God in forgiving sinners even while he is the one who justifies them. He declares them not guilty. How can he do this? It was because of the offering of Jesus Christ. Paul says he was a sacrifice of propitiation. That means he fully satisfied God's wrath against sinners. In our sin, we deserve judgment. We deserve to be punished forever in hell for a rebellion against God. But in his grace and love, God sent his own son to die and to take our place, the judgment that we deserved for our sins. Thus in Colossians 2, we read this, you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus could bring people to God because he satisfied God's wrath against them. He paid their debt of sin. He died for sinners that they might be forgiven. More than that, though, the third thing that we see is that Christ's death gives hope of the resurrection. Christ's death gives hope of the resurrection. Listen to verses 51 through 53. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, frankly, this has got to be one of the strangest passages in the New Testament. I mean, it's just bizarre. I remember the first time, I'm sure I had read it before, I think I would read it before, uh, but I was in high school and we were coming back from a, a youth group mission trip in Florida and I was in the back of the van reading through, reading through Matthew and, and I came across this and I was just like, what in the world? How come I've never heard a sermon on this before? No one ever talks about this and I read it again and I read it again I'm just thinking, what is going on here? Uh, who are these people? What is this resurrection that they experienced? Well, the truth is, I mean, to be honest, the details, we're not told. It's the only time we read about this. Matthew just drops it in there for us. But what we do know is, what we can surmise is based on the fact that these guys are called the saints or the holy ones, that these people were likely well-known figures in the Old Testament, the kind of Hebrews 11 people who lived faithfully before God. And we also know that while the tombs broke open upon Jesus' death, it wasn't until after Christ himself was raised back to life on the third day that they were raised back to life and began preaching to people. Notice closely what the text says. Coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So what is this all about? Well, I, th I think it has to do with something the Bible calls the first fruits. 
The principle of the first fruits is that there is an initial crop that shows what the full harvest is going to be like. So if you've planted, if you've done gardening, and, and right as the harvest time begins, right as, as the crop is being produced, if it is piddly, if it is small, that's not a good first fruits. That's telling you it's going to be a bad year for for uh for farming but if it's just like great if it's abundant if everything is massive and juicy and great and you're just like eating it right there in the field it's going to be a good year uh, what you have planted is going to come out well or think about it this way think about the first uh first time you get a job or maybe even just a new job and you usually have to work through at least one, if not more than one, works billing cycle before you actually get your first paycheck. But then you do get that first paycheck, the first one. And it's exciting. Why? Because it's a taste of the future. You're going to continue to work and you're going to continue to get paid for it to be able to provide for your family or yourself or whatever it is. And Paul here says that Christ, not just here, but in in the in the the Bible, he says that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. Today is Good Friday. We are thinking about the sobering reality of Jesus' death for sinners. But, but though it's Friday, Sunday is coming. And on Sunday, we will rejoice with great joy, as we should every Sunday, remembering Christ didn't stay dead. He came back from the grave as Savior and Lord. And when Paul talks about Christ being the first fruits of the resurrection, he means that since Christ was the first to be raised from the dead, he helps us to understand what is in store for God's people. He helps us to know what the full harvest will be, the full resurrection of all of God's people for all time. And I think this is where our guys come into our passage. If there was any doubt that Jesus rose from the dead, that perhaps, you know, maybe the disciples just stole the body and said he was raised from the dead. Or perhaps wild dogs ate him, as some people have said. Or perhaps, as one person has theorized, he didn't actually die. He just kind of passed out and instead of passed away. It was like a typographical error. And they just got it wrong. And, and he was, you know, came back to life and was fine. And, uh, you know, because he never really died. Well, Matthew says, no, 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 no. He died and he came back to life. And some of you will remember, we saw the Old Testament saints and that's what they preached to us. They themselves had came back to life and said, Jesus Christ himself is risen from the grave. And so because of this, this resurrection of these men that point to the, re, the, the truth of what is going to happen in just a few days, the resurrection of Christ, what we see is that through his death and resurrection, we have the promise as well that though we die, if we have faith in Christ, if he is our Savior, then one day we too will be raised back from the dead to dwell forever with God. Thus Christ's death, even his death, brought the hope of the resurrection for his people. Now, all of these things are frankly amazing. They are wonderful benefits that come to us at the expense of the death of Christ. But the last thing that we see is perhaps the most amazing of all, and that is this. Christ's death produces saving faith. Christ's death produces saving faith. Look how Matthew ends this section. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. It's interesting because Jesus came to the Jewish people and yet the Pharisees, those that have known the law the best, they missed it. Uh, the, the scribes, teachers, they missed it. The nation of Israel at large missed it. But here is a Gentile centurion who gets it. Jesus Christ is more than just a man. 
And that's powerful coming from a book written to Jews about Jesus. In fact, I think in some way, uh, Matthew is trying to say, look, don't you see he's your Messiah? He is our Christ. Even this Gentile, whom you would look at and say is a dog, even he gets it, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the one who came in humility and obedience to his heavenly Father, the one who came in righteousness, dying for those who were unrighteous, satisfying God's wrath against sin. He's more than just a man. He died and he came back to life because he was God in the flesh. He was the very Son of God. Now, surely later the centurion knew and understood much more than he did at this time. Nevertheless, Matthew includes us that we know what the appropriate response to hearing and seeing the death of Jesus, what the appropriate response should be, and that is this, faith. Faith in Jesus as the Son of God. But faith is more than just something you decide to do. The Bible says faith is ultimately a miracle. The faith that you have to believe in Jesus is a supernatural product of God himself. Why? Well, why is that? Isn't that we just, we have faith in lots of things, don't we? Yes. But the Bible is clear. When we put our faith in God, something special is happening. Because at the end of the day, we're not prone to believe God. The opposite. We're prone to despise Him, to go away from Him. In our sinfulness, our nature will not allow us, nor do we want to trust God. The prophet Jeremiah said this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You watch the news some night and you get that real sense, don't you? What in the world? How how can people do that? Furthermore, in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul explains in principle what this means. Without Christ, humanity is spiritually dead in their sins and in their trespasses against God's law. We all live according to the passions of our sinful heart. Whatever we want to do, unless there's some major consequence stopping us, we're going to do it. We're going to sin given every chance. Our our rebellion against God, our wickedness, is not just nurture. It's not just the environment in which we are raised. It is nature. It is who we are at our core as sinful people. Again, Paul is helpful us where he says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Because there is no fear of God before their eyes. By nature and by choice, we are spiritually dead to the things of God. We are enslaved to our sinful cravings, and so we are justly condemned by a holy God. This is why even Jesus himself, talking with a Pharisee, he said to him, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said something must take place, something different, something new. A spiritual rebirth must happen before anyone can enter the kingdom of God. Several years ago, I was at a conference with our youth and heard a man speak by the name of Menkaye. It was a very, uh, very gratifying experience because I'd read about this man uh, for many years before. He was part of a tribe of the Wadawi people in Ecuador, people who were at one time considered the most violent people in the world. Uh, statistics showed that if they kept at their present rate of killing one another, they would have caused their own tribe to be completely distinct within like 20 years. But some missionaries came to them. And though they were not received well, in fact, they were slaughtered, five of them, killed on the banks of the river there. Uh, Two of their widows decided to stay and to continue to work with this Wadawi people. And Menkaye's testimony was that, first of all, he didn't understand why in the world these ladies would do this. 
But second of all, as, as he was being taught what he called the carvings of God, in other words, God's word and his ways, he said he didn't understand them and he didn't want to keep them. He didn't like them. But then he said this, Suddenly one day God washed my sinful heart with the blood of Jesus and then I saw his way well and wanted to follow it. Friends, this is what is necessary for saving faith. It is that God comes in and does a supernatural work in our life. He breaks through the sinful hardness of our hearts that would say, I don't want to hear about God. I don't want to hear about Christ. I don't want to be responsible to him. I don't want to think of myself as a sinner. And he says, look at the truth of who you are and look at the even more glorious truth of how I have loved you in sending my son to die for you. Just as God opened the heart of that Roman soldier, opened the heart of Menkaye, and so many in between, he continues to open the hearts of men and women and children that they might call upon the name of Jesus Christ and have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. This morning, then, we stand like that centurion before Christ. We see him in our mind's eye through the scriptures, hanging on the cross, suffering under the hand of God for our sins. And today we have a choice. We can reject him as Savior. We can reject him as king or we can embrace him as those things, the very treasure of our life and be made right with God. This morning, if God's spirit is prompting you, if he is leading you, provoking you to look to Christ in faith and believe in him, then do not harden your heart, but answer that call and trust Jesus for the salvation of your sins. If God has already called you to faith, remember again the offering of Christ on your behalf. Behold his glory more clearly and be moved to love him more deeply. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us, not just in these few minutes, God, but as we move throughout our day, this day where literally millions of people around this world are thinking about in some cases, worshiping the God who gave up his life on a Roman cross. As we so often see in an old rugged cross. God, keep that picture of Christ dying for his people in our mind's eye. God, help us to remember it, to think about it, to dwell on it. Being humbled by it that an infinitely glorious and holy God would love sinners like us. Even to the point of offering his own son as a sacrifice necessary for our sins. God, we pray that this would be no ordinary day, but it would be a day that we could humbly bow in our hearts and our minds. As individuals, as a church, as families, we could bow humbly before you in awe and wonder at the cross of Christ. Father, for those that may be here who have never trusted in Jesus, God, we pray that you would open their minds and hearts, help them to see the truth of the cross and believe Believe that he is the only name under heaven, on earth, given among men by which we might be saved. The name of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.